Hello, everyone. This is Pete Hicks. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Before we get started, I want to mention if you're in the Sandpoint area, you can come out to some free concerts on July 22nd, Heels to the Heartwood, August 12th, Super Sparkle, August 26th, Still House Junkies. This is being put on by Rob Talbot and Maddox Farm Productions. It's at Farm and Park. You can find out more about that uh, if you look up Maddox Farm, M-A-T-T-O-X, Farm Productions on Facebook, or you can go to maddoxfarm.com. This is a great community event, and Mycelium Collective is a part of putting this on, as well as a few other businesses here. It's a free concert, though there will be a chance for you to donate to support this great community effort. Uh, We want our town to be linked together, and music is a great bridge. Hope to see you out there. Lay me down is an invitation to rest, to breathe, and to give thanks. Guided by storytellers, troubadours, poets, and mystics, our aim is to create a space where we can lay down our troubles, our anxieties, and listen to songs, to stories, and to voices that lead us home. Welcome to Lay Me Down. I'm your host, Pete Hicks. Sandy Compton comes over to our house whenever we're doing music, and he always brings his bag of harmonicas. He plays along. He's become a great friend since we've been living here in Sandpoint. He's an avid outdoorsman working alongside of Scotchman Peak's Wilderness, a nonprofit that's working to preserve the Scotchman Peak area. He's also the founder of Blue Creek Press. You can find out more at bluecreekpress.com. You can find his books, his poetry. Today he's going to read to us an excerpt from his book, The Dog with His Head on Sideways. Thank you for joining us on episode 9 of Lay Me Down. This is one of the shoreline stories from the Storytelling Company. Mary Wilson Elmore Doesn't Say by Sandy Compton. 
read by Sandy Compton. Mary Wilson Elmore has been the fifth grade teacher at O'Banion Elementary in Shoreline, Idaho for several decades. She grew up in the South, but she never says where. She has also remained single, but she never says why. She's about 55 years old and hasn't given up on herself physically, spiritually, or emotionally. Ten-year-old boys in her class sometimes still fall in love with her. The girls often want to grow up to be like her. For a couple of decades, many young men attending the high school nearby harbored secret fantasies about Miss Elmore. When she left college, for reasons she doesn't tell, she determined to get as far from her roots as possible and so took a job in Iowa, which she had mistaken for Idaho, the names being somewhat similar. She had signed a two-year contract and so did her first stint of teaching in the Corn Belt. When her time was up there, she found and took the job that she holds still. Mary Wilson is a good teacher. She has positively influenced the lives of hundreds of children in the 30-plus years she has been at O'Banion. She has taught some of the characters we already know, notably Austin Henriksen. Austin was and is one of her favorites, though she would not allow herself to demonstrate that in her classroom. Mary Wilson nearly didn't complete her first year at O'Banion due to an extended conflict with the family of one of her students. McKelvey was the name of the family, and their boy Maxwell was the oldest and the first of the five kids to enter O'Banion. Behind him, and in rapid succession, were coming Meredith, Margaret, Michael, and Brady III. The patriarch of this family was Brady Jr., and he and his wife Millie, Millicent for long, were well off, if somewhat cross-grained. Brady's grandpa, an immigrant from the United Kingdom with a fourth-grade education, had made a fortune in white pine, by hook and by crook, as they say. It helped that he had a cousin in the purchasing department of the Royal Navy when white pine spars were still in great demand for shipbuilding. He invested well, including a big chunk of stock in O'Banion lumber and a block of the land that the town of Shoreline eventually came to occupy. He also claimed some big tracts of timberland along the far side of the river that Brady Jr. has been developing into vacation home plots for the fly fishing crowd from Boise. The family is well endowed, if not well educated, and, for lack of a better word, wild. They are beholden to no one, and no one tells them what to do. So it came to be that Maxwell, who with the help of his influential parents had blustered and bullied his way through grades one through four, and Mary Wilson, who was fresh from well-behaved Iowa and expected good behavior and respect from her students, arrived in grade five classroom at O'Banion Elementary on the same day. fight began when Maxwell immediately began to test Mary Wilson's authority by talking during her welcome speech. After two warnings, Max found himself in the principal's office. The fight expanded when, after a week of daily trips to the principal's office did not deter Maxwell from starting each day with a challenge, 
she began to inflict after-school detention. This got Maxwell's attention and also Millicent's. She went and had a talk with a new teacher, explaining to her in no uncertain terms that she could not think of anything one of her children could have done to deserve to be held after school. Mary Wilson explained to her what Maxwell was doing and found out that the school had not notified the McKelveys about Maxwell's daily trips to the principal's office. She inquired and found that the school administration had given up on the McKelvey children, especially now that there are four of them in school. They were to be endured and passed on to the next level so as to get them through the system as quickly as possible. Mary Wilson did not accept this. If the McKelvey children spent their elementary school career in the principal's office, what on earth would happen to them in high school, and then college, and then the real world? She liked Maxwell, who was an intelligent, funny boy with a great heart, just no sense of propriety or self-control. During the next three months, even after the fight was joined by Brady Jr., who complained at each meeting of the school board that the fifth grade teacher was singling out his son for discipline, she explained precisely to Maxwell why he was in trouble as she led him to the principal's office or sat with him in detention. The school board, being pressured by Brady Jr. and the Parent Teachers Association, which Millicent was a member of, both spoke to Mary Wilson's principal, Jackson Floria who spoke to Mary Wilson of endurance in the name of peace. Whose peace, Mr. Floria? Yours? The boy's quiet when he's sitting in your chair with nobody to notice him, no girls to flirt with, no friends to cajole. I will not have him interrupting the learning of my other pupils, though I love teaching him when he is receptive. He's a good boy with bad habits, and I think the inaction of all the adults in his life that could help him understand the value of attentiveness and forbearance is nearly criminal. This conversation took place at an elevated volume just after Thanksgiving, and it was overheard by a little pitcher with big ears. Maxwell himself was sitting in the outer office when Miss Elmore unloaded on Mr. Floria, and she knew he had heard every word when she flounced by him on the way out. The school board, the PTA, and Mr. Floria held their breath, then waiting for the battle to subside, but it did not. It escalated. Max became more intractable and Miss Elmore more determined. For the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas break, Max was in the principal's office every day and nearly every evening he was detained by Miss Elmore for misbehavior. In the week before Christmas holiday, though, something changed. Miss Elmore stopped telling Maxwell why he was going to the office or staying after school. She could no longer do this alone, she had decided. And with the last day of school two days away, with Max sitting in detention, reading Jack London, he did love to read, she had discovered, and brought him Call of the Wild, she finished writing out her resignation. In it, she told exactly why, but not once did she accuse Max of being the cause. She could see beyond that. She detailed what she saw as the failures and irresponsibilities of the school and the community. Max was just finishing his book when she sighed loudly and unconsciously and signed the letter. She folded it carefully and put it into the top left drawer of her desk and looked up to find Maxwell looking at her intently. She left him sitting alone while she made sure the school was locked up. Then she sent him home and knew she would not detain him again. The next day he was quiet and withdrawn and she worried he was getting sick. 
After lunch, he didn't come back to class, and she went to the office. Mrs. McKelvey had come to get him after he complained of a stomach ache. As she walked back to the classroom, she realized that she might never see him again, for when he came back to the classroom after the first of the year, she would be gone. When all the children were gone that day, Mary Wilson Elmore sat in her empty classroom, surrounded by all the Christmassy things that fifth graders do, and cried and cried and cried. The next day was a half day of school, punctuated by cookies and punch and a blind gift exchange. Maxwell did not arrive, though his gift did by way of his sister Meredith, who stared at Mary Wilson as if she had two heads and practically sprinted from the room when she left. It was early afternoon and all the kids were gone. Mary Wilson was getting ready to put her resignation in its envelope when she looked up to find Brady McKelvey Jr. standing in the classroom door. She opened her mouth to say something and out came, How is Maxwell? Is he getting better? Maxwell tells me you are quitting, Brady said. She was shocked. I've not told anyone I'm quitting. But you are. Yes, Mr. McKelvey, faced with the prospect of having to discipline your boy every day for the rest of this year, and then your next four children every day for the next four years, I am resigning. He says you never yelled at him once or paddled him, nor even asked Mr. Floria to paddle him. It's not his fault, Mr. McKelvey, that he is the way he is. He learned to be Maxwell long before I met him. That's fair, though I feel the sting of it. Brady paused and cleared his throat. I have been asked to ask you not to quit. By whom, Mr. McKelvey? An interested party, he answered. Mary Wilson let her frustration rise momentarily to the surface. The only way that I would stay, Mr. McKelvey, is if you and Mrs. McKelvey and the rest of the community, for that matter, would support me in what I am trying to do here, and I don't see much chance of that. His countenance changed, and she knew she had made a mistake by showing her anger. An upstart teacher upbraiding one of the community's sons, and what are you trying to do, Miss Elmore? he asked stiffly. She let him have it. Teach children to be good learners, good listeners, good communicators, good teachers even. Maxwell and his friends need skills to survive in the real world. That means recognizing that others are affected by our behavior. A boy with Maxwell's intelligence and curiosity will do well in the world, Mr. McKelvey, if he learns to control himself socially. I've done what I promised I would do, Miss Elmore, he said. It appears that you will do what you have to do. Good afternoon. And he left. Mary Wilson sat down at her desk, opened the top left drawer, and drew out the letter. She opened it to see that it was written as she wished it to be, though she had recomposed it a dozen times at least. Then she saw a tiny little smudge of a fingerprint on the upper right-hand corner of the page, a small clue but a vital one, to why Brady McKelvey Jr. might visit her and ask her not to quit. 
She sat for a long time looking at that tiny smudge. Then very carefully and very slowly, she tore the letter into tiny pieces, saved the upper right-hand corner, which she taped with great care to the left side of the box that formed the top left drawer of her desk, where she would see the saved fingerprint any time she opened the drawer. There was a Christmas gathering at First Community Church that she had been invited to, an opportunity to move deeper into the community. She had eschewed going as she had decided she would be leaving Shoreline for good and very soon. Now she reconsidered and wondered what potluck dish she could come up with on such short notice. Then, after locking her desk for the first time ever, she went home. On the walk to her rooms, she decided there was no reason to say to anyone else that she had almost left, or why she decided to stay. You have been listening to Mary Elmore Doesn't Say by Sandy Compton. You can find out more about Sandy if you go to our website, laymedownpodcast.com, or to his website at bluecreekpress.com. You're also listening to the harmonica playing of Sandy. Thanks so much for joining us on Lay Me Down. Lay Me Down is a production of the Mycelium Collective, which exists to galvanize local and international communities towards greater trust and unity through creative collaboration. This is a poem by John O'Donohue. May all that is unforgiven in you be released. May your fears yield their deepest tranquillities. May all that is unlived in you blossom into a future graced with love. <laughs>